Welcome, everybody. Um, I'm delighted this evening to welcome His Excellency Gerard Herrera to the LSE. I said to him when we walked in, this is my favourite theatre for public events. Uh, it's just got a very elegant feel about it. It's a good space for lectures. So I'm especially pleased that um, as his lectures bringing to close this year's collaboration with Sciences Po in the Franco-British European Dialogue series, we've got the best venue to do it. That series um, will continue. Uh, next year, we've got plans for you know, another venture, same sort of idea, looking at uh, Europe in the world. We've had six distinguished speakers from Sciences Po this year in this event, and we're very pleased to be hosting this evening's event in association with the Franco-British Council and grateful once again to have the support of FT Business. This evening's lecture is even more special than just the end of a very successful series. It's effectively Ambassador Herrera's valedictory speech. He goes back to Paris tomorrow morning to take charge of the French Foreign Ministry, the Quai d'Orsay, as the Permanent Secretary. I have to say it's a pleasure to be able to do this, you know, your last event in the UK. Gerard Herrera came to London as ambassador just over five years ago, having been, amongst other things, political director at the Foreign Ministry and before that French ambassador to NATO. Here in London, he has, by common consent, represented his country with, this is typically French, isn't it, of course, flair, charm, intellectual distinction, He's explained his country's position calmly and reasonably. He's never been shy to set it out in the UK's rather idiosyncratic media, not least during some of those rockier periods where the Entente Cordiale occasionally runs into problems, for example, the Iraq invasion. It's very nice to have ambassadors that have the ability and the skill and the diplomacy to do that sort of thing. We at the LSE have particular reason to be grateful to him because as an ambassador and a true friend of the school, he's helped make our collaboration with Sciences Po move to a whole new level. He's come here often to share his own thoughts with public audiences and our students. And with his support, we've now increased to five, I think, the number of double degree master's programs with Sciences Po. The latest is an EU programme between Sciences Po and the European Institute. We also want to record with real gratitude the Ambassador's support for the creation of, this is a rather unique venture for the LSE, the LSE Sciences Po Alliance Chair. Professor Christian Lequen is based in the European Institute and he's the first incumbent of that chair. I was very enthusiastic about this venture. I could see all sorts of possibilities coming out of it. They depend remarkably on the personal skills of the incumbent of the chair, who's got to do things beyond what most professors have to do. He has to not only you know, teach, do administration, etc., etc., as all LSE professors do, but raise to a new level an institutional uh, engagement with uh, his own university and us. And I have to say I'm most grateful, Christian, 
Where is he? Most grateful to you um, for doing a splendid job. It really has been a pleasure to have you here halfway through your term now. And Ambassador, we're very grateful for your, for your support. I haven't finished yet. No, I'm not going to take up all your time, but I haven't finished yet. <laughs> but your support in that initiative was really very welcome. Whilst we're talking about this little bit of France on the Aldwych, we've got about 200, a bit more than 200 French students here at the LSE, of whom the ambassador's son is one. Our French students play, play a very full part in the life of the school, and we're really proud of them. They form a nice body of students here. And can I also convey our warm thanks to the ambassador's team, notably to Laurence Oer, Edouige Girardin, I can't do these pronunciations as well as most people, and Diego Collard. Working with them on this series has been uh, both enjoyable and fruitful. In fact, they've become quite good friends of some of my colleagues here. And we're also very pleased to welcome here tonight Minister Councillor Jacques Audibert, Ambassador. Everyone knows the importance which you attach to the Franco-British relationship. Your own commitment was made plain during the celebrations of the centenary of the Entente Cordiale in 2004, and indeed throughout your time here in London. The commitment seems to go beyond the diplomatic courtesy that goes with an ambassador's job, and in your case I think it's a matter of personal conviction. The title of your lecture suggests I'm not about to be proved wrong, so... Welcome, Your Excellency. Thank you. Thank you very much, Mrs. Worthington, for your kind words. Too kind. I was nearly going to say that I would not deserve those uh, compliments, but I uh, remembered La Rochefoucauld saying, which is to say that to refuse compliments is in fact a secret desire to be complimented twice. So <laughs> I will not reject those compliments. Uh, <clears throat> dear, dear friends, as always, it is a, a great honor to be here and to address this prestigious audience at the London School of Economics. As you know, I have only professional uh, links with LSE, but also, as you kindly reminded, personal family ones. For some veterans uh, who were there, were here three, three years ago, my lecture at the LSE three years ago was Britain and France, our place in Europe and the world. Today, it is France and Britain and Europe and in the world. Let's seize the opportunities. So I'm very happy to have made such a difference already, even before starting my lecture. I would like, uh, seriously speaking, to, to thank the Franco-British Council, who helped organize this event, but also more generally for its tireless work to foster a better understanding between France and Britain. I would like to pay tribute to the chair of its British section, Baroness Quinn, and the former chair, Lord Radice. I would also like to express my immense gratitude to Maurice Fraser, now Vice-Chairman of the British Section. Formerly, as you, as you said earlier, 
This talk is meant to close a lecture series on France which took place throughout the spring, a critical moment uh, during the French electoral campaign which captivated also many people in Britain. These lectures provided insight on the close partner that France will always be for Britain and I would like to thank the LSE and Sciences Po and in particular Christian Lequen for organizing them. This conference, which date was agreed a long time ago, is also, as you said, a special moment for me. Because, as you may know, this is literally my last evening in London as French ambassador before becoming Secretary General du Quai d'Orsay. In English, I think, permanent under Secretary. And for that, I would want not to be anywhere else than in this place, in this prestigious and friendly institution. It has been a very exciting time for me. When I arrived here, two situations I had reached crisis point. Two very simple matters, in fact, as you might remember. Sangat, which nearly triggered war between the two countries, and the French embargo on British beef, another potential war. A few weeks later, both were resolved. I would like to think that it was entirely thanks to me, but some truth and some modesty, on which, of course, French and British are specialists and experts, uh, compels me to recognize that the ministers of the time, in particular Nicolas Sarkozy, then Home Secretary, together with David Blanquet, also had something to do with it. And after these months of where everything was uh, uh, resolved, I was slightly worried that I would have nothing more to do. Then, as you may remember, a few things happened in Brussels and then in Baghdad. Then I understood that it would be, I would be kept rather busy. As I am about to leave, I would like to look back on these past fantastic and exciting years. And instead of giving the dialectical lecture with three parts and three subparts and three sub-subparts, as the French love to do, uh, you know, we, are, we can only think and speak in three parts. Uh, I would like to share with you a few memories of these past few years in London. And in, in, in so doing, I would want to do two things. First, to try to dwell a little on what what could call the mystery of the Franco-British relationship, and then to try to explore the potential of this relationship in Europe and in the world. First, the mystery of the Franco-British relationship. It's true, it's clear, and it's no secret that France and Britain have a unique relationship as demonstrated by the celebration of the 100th anniversary of the Entente Cordiale Treaty in 2004. And when it comes to France or Britain, and even more to France and Britain, and, and Britain together, one cannot distangle, disentangle the past and the present, the rivalry and the admiration, tradition and modernity. And we should be proud of that not to denigrate it. 
In a recent book titled That Sweet Enemy, Robert and Isabel Toombs describe precisely this strange and unique aspect of our relationship. This delicate balancing is what makes our bilateral relationship so volatile. We are always tempted to press our views on the other, to confront absolutely antagonistic opinions and patterns of actions. This is how we add up our flaws and enter into sterile debates. Too often, too often, especially within the European Union, the temptation is to go from the simplistic Franco-British opposition. Then we are sure to have cheap, amusing for some, but not necessarily for anybody else, point-scoring exercises. This, for example, just an example, visceral hostility here to the common agricultural policy and the tenacious defense of the British rebate have offered countless occasions for such exciting and totally useless exercises. But when we respect our unique blend of differences and similarities, we can really have the best of both worlds. The Eurostar's high-speed link all the way to St. Pancras is one good example in addition, it ends, which is not a minor achievement before I leave here, uh, the ignominy to stop or to depart from or to arrive at Waterloo. So the question is how to put to work for the best our very unique, I would not dare to call it special, uh, relationship. First point, one important lesson is that in that regard is that to acknowledge that there is no single model. I think it's important. Different countries have different societies and have historically made different choices. This is clearly the case for France and Britain. We should acknowledge that. We should respect that because these choices are often the result of our culture, of our heritage, of our institutions, of our history. For that reason, there cannot be one single system. There cannot be one single model. Of course, that, that doesn't mean that lessons should not be learned. When Nicolas Sarkozy campaigned in London to stress his ideas for labor market reforms, he was, saying, he was saying just that. But if I stress this point, it is to avoid misunderstandings about the French reforms now underway. What is happening in our country today is not an attempt to replace so-called French model by a so-called British model, but to make the best of what works well and to fix what doesn't. Because some choices that have been made in France are still very relevant. Infrastructure, energy security, good public services, and so on. And where things are less successful, labor market, welfare state, tax system, lessons have to be drawn from wherever things work better. And for that, Britain is a place where there is much inspiration to take, as you, we have seen 
in, in uh, the last few years when many people coming from France have come here to look at what the experience was in order to take the best of it. President Sarkozy has a clear mandate on a wide-ranging program and things, I would say, and I would be prepared to answer your questions afterward, are now well on track. And a good example about this absence of a single model, it is the question, debate of integration and national cohesion. I remember well, two years and a half ago, the London bombings, July the 7th. I was at the Glen Eagle Summit with President Chirac, together with all the Prime Minister Blair. And when we heard about the, uh, the bombings, I had to come back to London in order to take care of the French community, an important French community. And Tony Blair had, was very kind to allow me to fly home with him uh, to London in his plane. And then I, I reached the embassy and uh, we had a, a crisis center there and in order to, to take the calls of the hundreds of relatives of French people living in London. In the longer term, the realization that the bombers were of British nationality came as a shock and raised a fundamental debate here about integration. It is a very important debate in Britain. It is also, as you know, an important debate in France, although the nature of the difficulties is different in the two countries. Fundamentally, the conciliation between societies that are more and more diverse and the need to ensure national unity is one of the common challenges that our two countries face together. In previous years, this issue would have constituted or has constituted a typical example of our tendency to fall back on sterile and prejudiced points scoring, a useless confrontation between a republican model on one side and a multicultural model on the other. The sometimes excessive reactions here of our decisions, our, our positions on the prohibition of conspicuous, conspicuous religious symbols in state schools in 2003 a measure which in the end re-established order without causing any offense illustrates this point very topically. Happily, in 2005, we found a way to seize the opportunity and get something done in that regard. And I would like to pay here a tribute, special tribute to Trevor Phillips, then chair of the Commission for Racial Equality and today chair of the Commission for Equality and Human Rights, because Together with him, we several times afterwards uh, proved to be, he proved to be an, an invaluable interlocutor and it was possible to build a really fruitful discussion, seminars, speeches, meetings between leading figures and all these allowed us to set aside ideology and to develop a better understanding on what the issue really is how each of our approaches succeeded and, fall and fail, how they could be improved, and where possible, how to do things jointly. That is 
uh, how the Franco-British relationship should work. Let me say now uh, a word or two uh, and to explore how to make this relationship work for the best, if not for the best, at least better, in Europe and in the world. My conviction, my deep conviction, and it's not from five years I've been here, but for many, many years, is that France and Britain have a common destiny and that this destiny is a European one. It is as European nations that our two countries can work, should work best in Europe, for Europe, and in the wider world. When I arrived here, there was an exciting, still an exciting discussion in London on Europe. A few years earlier, Britain and France had launched together the Saint-Malo summit, I will go back on that later, the policy of European defense. Britain has, had just joined the social chapter and the debate about Britain joining the Euro was still quite lovely, lively. Not lovely, lively. After this, the European Union as a project and as an ideal went through a rough patch here, but also elsewhere in Europe. The deep divisions between governments, but not public opinions, over the Iraqi war, then the rejection of the European Constitution in France and the Netherlands, led to a stalemate in Europe. Today, we are out of the doldrums. We have solved the question of European institutions with the reform treaty, and we can move on. And there are big items on the agenda now in Europe, on climate change, on energy, on migrations, on putting a genuine policy towards countries such as China, Russia, India, and also on defense. And I'm struck, I must say, over the past five years, although the Eurostar has made the trip between London and Brussels or Paris much shorter, Europe has become more distant in this country. A very hostile discourse about cooperation in Europe, quite a strange mixture of myth and misrepresentations, has unfortunately become more vocal and less challenged. That's a fact. And it's not for me, and on, but only for you, for, for Britons, to decide if their national interest lies in close partnership with Britain's neighbors through this extraordinary endeavor, which is the European Union, in a Europe at last reunified, or if it lies elsewhere. But let's be clear, things are starting again in the European Union. The time has come to launch new initiatives for the good of our countries and of our citizens. And I really think that it would be unfortunate if Britain did not seize this opportunity to play its full role. Many have pointed, uh, have pointed how 
here that one of the main tasks for the European Union now is to prepare for the challenges of globalization. In this regard, I remember, maybe you remember also, the question of uh, ITER, the question of the negotiation about a future research reactor project, ITER. And ITER is a perfect example about the role of the European Union in the world and about its possible contribution to globalization. How to meet an increasing demand for energy is, of course, and I believe it deeply, one of the most important challenges. One promising response to that challenge could be nuclear fusion. If the, the technique can be mastered, the challenge is daunting because it is to recreate the sort of processes that are going on inside the sun. But the costs are incredible, are, are, are an incredible amount of money. Nobody can do it alone, not the US, not Japan, not Russia, not the European Union, let alone France and Britain. So we have to pull our, our forces. And it is because the European Union was united that it has been able to take leadership of this project. The reason I stress this example is that during all those months of negotiations to decide where ITER would be, what it would be exactly, and how much each would have to pay, decision-making inside the European Union was not easy, and it was Franco-British leadership which made it possible. France and Britain combining their forces to prepare for the future of Europe, that is, that should be our aim. Therefore, and this is a very important point that I want to stress, when I hear that Europe should abandon its former approach of inward, or presumably, inward-looking integration to develop a new approach of outward-looking opening up. I'm not sure one should oppose those two ideas. I'm, in fact, convinced of the contrary, and I'm convinced that the two aspects are complementary. It is because the European Union is a leader in its internal environment policy, for example, that it has become a leader in international in environmental negotiations. It is through its common standards inside that it expresses global, global leadership. In short, it is because it has common policies and not merely because it is open to trade that the European Union can establish itself as a world leader and therefore better defend its interests, our interests. And defending these interests also means having the means and the will to meet our international responsibilities. I remember before I arrived here as ambassador, the bilateral France-Britain summit in Saint-Malo in 1998, which I think is the happiest memory of my whole uh, uh, diplomatic life. Uh, because we, I on, my, on the French side, and my counterpart, the British, on the, on the other side, we spent hours, seven or eight hours, negotiating a text beforehand and the night before so that our leaders could sign a declaration and launch cooperation with huge potential and furthermore, which was for the good of all Europeans. And a few months later, the agreement reached in Saint-Malo between our two countries was transformed 
into the conclusions of a European summit and endorsed by everyone in the European Union. The European Union, when you think about it, and that's also an important point, is the only international entity able to rely on the entire spectrum of instruments to pursue its objectives. Political dialogue, trade, development, 50% of all foreign aid in the world comes from the European Union. The example and the attraction provide by its values and their means of implementation. So we have the whole uh, panoply. What was needed in order to have a complete one was a capacity to define our interests in the world and the means to defend them effectively. And this is why, this is why European defense matters and what, why it was important to have that breakthrough in Somalia. In that respect, we, France and Britain, have a crucial role to play. Together, we represent about 50% of all European defense spending and two-thirds of all European defense-related research. European defense, which, by the way, was never, has never been about the creation of a European army, along with the necessary strengthening of the Atlantic Alliance, is therefore not some kind of a luxury which we may consider eventually if the conditions uh, somehow become optimal in the future. It is vital to make progress now if we want to give more credibility to our effort to pursue our foreign policy goals and to promote our values in the world. For that, we need a sense of urgency. We need a greater commitment to support European actions than we have seen lately, for example, in the field of armament. We need the necessary cap capabilities. These are important advances which we should be able to make together. And last point, what about France and Britain in the world? The common assumption is that we disagree on nearly everything. Nothing could be more remote from realities. Three points. I have my three points. On all, on all the big issues, on all the big crises, on all the big conflicts now in the world, we have and we share the same analysis. And we have very often very close positions. The Middle East, Afghanistan, the Balkans, which will be soon with us with the Kosovo question, just uh, the next thing on our plate tomorrow. Africa, Darfur, where are the differences between our countries on those issues? None. On all the big global challenges, whether they are strategic or whether they are moral, we agree and we act together. Terrorism, where our cooperation has increased uh, over the years. The proliferation of weapons of mass destruction. Look at, uh, the, uh, at Iran, where Britain, France, together with Germany, have taken in their hands over the last four years maybe the most difficult issue uh, that we face internationally. They have defined a policy, they have succeeded in convincing the United States and then Russia and then China and then the others to share this policy. I'm not saying that it is a success, but it is an example of what 
our two countries, when they are together, can make a difference. Aid to, de to development, climate change. I was speaking about Glenigals earlier. This is where our two countries succeeded in having the agenda focused on that question and to make some advances. Energy and a common policy on energy. There also we were together at the European Council of Hampton Court during the British presidency in October 2005 in order to, for the first time, uh, speak about, open the debate about uh, the necessity to have a European energy policy. So on these issues, the question is not to reconcile different analyses or positions or ambitions. It is to find the way to get our act together and to find the right way to create international momentum, especially in the United Nations Security Council. All right, you would say, but uh -huh, what about Iraq? Well, even about, it's no secret uh, that on Iraq we were strongly divided. Our governments were strongly divided. Our opinions were not, but our government were strongly divided. But today we have to address the consequences uh, of that war and we have to address it in a way where our interests uh, have uh, to be secured and where the problem uh, of stability, of democracy in Iraq has to be addressed. And I think that the uh, recent uh, trip that Bernard Kushner, the Minister of Foreign Affairs, has made to Iraq shows that we are not just at the balcony waiting for this situation uh, to be solved by others, but we are also there in order to contribute uh, to a political solution. Okay, but uh, what about the United States? There also, I think that it is important, we are in a quite interesting moment uh, in the relationship uh, with the United States. Uh, what President Sarkozy's visit to the United States uh, shows is that between France and the United States, which are the oldest allies, we are the only European country uh, which has not been at war with the United States. That means uh, including the United Kingdom. Uh, of course, uh, there has uh, the, the, the necessity to manage a relationship which is based on friendship, on shared values, on the necessity to respect each other, but to have the sense that all in all, we have the same challenges and we, have, we are better off if we meet those challenges together. That's the President Sarkozy visit uh, meaning, and to do that while maintaining our positions and to say what we have to say on all the issues, either to agree or to disagree. I was among those after 9-11 who was convinced that out of this tragedy, out of this atrocity of 9-11, could, there could be a sort of new beginning in the relationship between Europe and the United States in order to not only to tackle terrorism and the Taliban and Afghanistan, but also to address the other major issues of the world. It was not possible then, 
I hope it's possible today, and I hope that together with Britain, we can contribute to that. In my first speech to the LSE, I quoted Julian Barnes saying, if you were God and you were trying to create a nation which would most get up the British nostrils, it would probably be the French, and vice versa, may I add. I, maybe it's time to say enough, enough of that. How long will we continue to indulge in these games, which have made us miss so many opportunities to work together and to really understand and respect each other? And I'm not sure that we can afford any more to miss other opportunities. And this being a learned institution, I will conclude by telling you about the three books that I've read during those years. I've, I've read more than three books, but I've, among the books I've read, there are three books which really impressed me because they are re very relevant to our relationship. One is the book I was uh, quoting earlier, That Sweet Enemy, which is a brilliant book about the 300 years of Franco-British relationship and shows precisely all those missed opportunities between France and the United Kingdom. The second is Five Days in London in 1940 by a brilliant American-Hungarian uh, historian, Lukács, showing how difficult it has been for Churchill to get from a very weak position in the cabinet to a very strong position in the cabinet, a weak position vis-à-vis -vis those who wanted to uh, appease uh, Hitler, and then little by little to arrive uh, at a strong position to resist, which means that nothing is written in advance in history and that men or women can change its course. And the third book is a, also a very brilliant book by um, Margaret Macmillan, who is now, I think, the dean of uh, St. Anthony's in Oxford, called The Peacemakers, and which is a book about the peace conference of Versailles after the First World War, where all the leaders, and especially the three bigs, Wilson, Lloyd George, and Clemenceau, had to see how they would cope with the situation. And the book is about, in a way, a very present problem, uh, challenge, which is how are, we, are our leaders uh, up to the task uh, of redefining a totally, of reshaping a totally different world. So that's the three books and that's the three messages uh, and I think that it is not only up to us but it's also up to you as students and therefore leaders of tomorrow to do what it takes for, for the historians in some years to pass, who will pass judgment on what we are doing today in order to tackle the issue and to tackle the issue of reshaping the world, that this judgment would be a positive one. Just one word, and I will end by that. What I just told you is not only the lecture of a departing French ambassador. It is what I believe deeply what I've been convinced of for a long time, and those convictions have been reinforced during those five years in London. And those strong convictions uh, 
I will take them with me, and these are the same convictions I will try to implement in my new functions in Paris. I think I owe you not only to my own beliefs, I think that I owe that not only to my government, but also I owe that to the deep, very deep friendship I have for this country. Thank you. Before just, it is my last day, so all questions have to be nice questions. <laughs> um, when, could you say who you are and where you're from? I think that over the last 10 years, we have seen Britain quite engaged in, uh, in Europe. We have seen Tony Blair, uh, one of his first uh, decisions uh, was to uh, adopt a social uh, chapter. Uh, then we had Saint-Malo, which was a huge uh, change from the past, where foreign policy, defense were taboo in your opinion were taboo from the agenda. And all the speeches about uh, Britain and Europe was about precisely Britain not missing trains. I, I think it's where the, the exact, exact words of, of Tony Blair. Britain should not miss opportunities, should not miss trains. I think it's, it's fair to say that over the last few years, this momentum uh, has been a little, little slow down. And it corresponded also to a time where Europe as a whole was slowing down, especially in the last two years. Now that the sky is clear, now that we have solved the institutional problem, now that we are looking forward, now that the challenges are there and that the necessities are there, because the world continues to turn round, uh, whether we, we do things or not. It's important that we have a clear vision of what we want the European Union, where we want the European Union to go. What is it that we can do better at the European level? Because when you think about the matters uh, which concern our citizens, terrorism, environment, climate change, relations with Russia, and many others. They are not one that, cannot, that can be dealt at nationally. All of these have one way or another to be dealt with in order to be effective at European level. 
whether it is in, in a intergovernmental cooperation or in common uh, policies or otherwise, but it is at that level. Uh, this, is, this is now. This is not in the year two, 2020. And this is now that our countries, and I hope including Britain, will have to act, will have to engage, will have to propose, and will have to be cooperative and to work with others. Is it possible to, yeah, there is a, a light there, I don't know if it is to impress me, but which is, it goes <laughs> directly into my eyes, there is a, a spot. Thank Oops. you. That's no. Excuse me, could you speak up? Yes, I'm Antonia. I'm studying actually in LSVU, and I used to live in France. Since I'm wondering about the future perspectives that you've got between France and the UK. If um, you have ever tried to challenge education to kind of gather the, um, the forces, the educative one, intelligent. I'm sorry, could you speak into Make a cooperation between education, educational system. Have you ever, let's say, enhanced it? promoted it while you were working as ambassador. Do you get it? I understood it was about education yeah. and in cooperation between the two countries on education. Is that right? Yes, not like a Erasmus exchange program, but even before that, because it's like UK British children and French children are losing their foreign language skills. Ah. So was wondering, you as French ambassador, what do you can... Well, as, as French ambassador, and after many of my predecessors... Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Didn't got to get that back light off because... This jockey is arriving. <laughs> uh, Wake up, everybody. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, many of my predecessors have made a big, big uh, campaign, a big lobbying in this country to explain the value uh, of uh, learning languages. I can't say that we have been very successful, frankly. Uh, all, all the polls show a decline in learning uh, foreign languages in this country. I think it's a pity. It's not only a pity for our languages, uh, although French uh, continues to be the first language to be... Uh, but it is a pity for the kind of overture to the rest of the world and to Europe that learning a foreign language means. It's not only to learn a language, but learning a language means that you open to the world, you open to countries, you open to, to other cultures, and therefore uh, you, you, you can engage a little better. So, uh, excuse me? Can I do one intervention there and then we probably do have to move on? In some ways the LSE is a little island of good practice because the uptake of languages at the language school at the LSE is well above the national average for uh, you know, a willingness, I guess, to undertake extra training in language. 
And I think it's probably not up to the ambassador alone, but all of us, to try and push the, the message that being skilled in that area allows you to better understand how we're enriched by our differences across the language barrier. So we do our little bit here. I think more could be done, but that's not exactly by the ambassador. No, you're absolutely right. It's of course it's our job. But it's, it's, it's not only our job. I think that it's a job for all those who have a responsibility for uh, trying to open uh, a country to the rest of the world. Um, here. Can I take, say, three in a row and then one, two, three? Hi, um, my name is <laughs> yeah, Tom, and I'm studying here at LSC. And I do you believe that France will continue to block full Turkish accession into the EU? I'm not sure that I would agree with your term, block, because we have not blocked anything. Uh, I think that President Sarkozy's position on, on Turkey has been very clear. Uh, I think also that the decisions that we have made and the decisions that we have allowed to pass in Brussels are also very clear. Uh, where is the, what did we block? If you can tell me, I would be happy. Uh, we have said there, there are 30 chapters to be uh, opened in the negotiations. 30 of those, there are 35 chapters. 30 of those 35 chapters are compatible both with accession and with, let's say, special relationship. We are ready to open those chapters provided uh, that we have at the same time, because I think it's a good thing, uh, a, a reflection, a collective reflection on where Europe goes in the future, including its borders. So uh, I think that far from blocking anything, we have, and especially with respect to a position which was not the most open one vis-à-vis -vis membership, we have done quite a long way and quite a, a uh, an effort in order to let things uh, happen in a way which would be both uh, compatible with our positions in substance, but also with our responsibilities vis-à-vis uh, -vis the other countries and vis-à-vis -vis Turkey. Uh, Ambassador William Horsley, uh, I'm a journalist. Um, a friendly question about Russia. Uh, do you share the uh, expression of Tony Blair uh, to the Russian leader, Mr. Putin, in July, that the outside world is becoming frightened about the direction of Russia, including its foreign policy. This followed, of course, the Litvinenko poisoning here in London. And uh, if so, what should our two countries be doing together? Is it not a slight problem that uh, your government, under President Chirac, developed a very close relationship with uh, Mr. Putin uh, on, deliberately in order to create some new kind of uh, axis of power in the European area. I would slightly differ about the, the characterization of, uh, of uh, President Chirac's policy, uh, but uh, we have a, as you might know, we have a new president uh, now. Uh, but one, since you, you, you put Chirac's policy, it was not a, a, a policy to create an axis. It was a policy which was in the continuation of the policy which we had before and which is 
quite consistent with the policy which is now the one of many other democracies, the United States included, looking at Russia with, in a way, with the idea that Russia is a big country which has had a very difficult, which is having a, a huge task of going from a dictatorship to a modern state and to a democratic state. After 70 years of communism, you don't do that in one uh, day. And, and therefore, uh, it is up to us to defend our interests, to defend our values, including on human rights, including on saying what are the issues on which we don't agree, not only for our interest, but also for the interest of Russia in trying to build in a, a modern state and a relationship with the rest of the world. I think that we are in that policy. We will continue it. And I don't think, frankly, that it is very different if you look at what happens right now in the, in the, in the statements, in the positions that all our countries are putting vis-à-vis -vis Russia, you would not see a huge difference. Now, I think that it would be very good if our two countries would be a little more together in order to define that, not only in general terms, but also in practical terms vis-à-vis -vis energy and, and other matters. But I think that we should be careful uh, not to caricature nor policy, neither policies nor situations. I think that we have a definite situation in Russia. I think that it is once again our duty to have a clear view of what our interests are and try to share those, those, those views, to, to, to be very clear vis-à-vis -vis Russia of what we have to say and not be afraid of to say what we have to say. And at the same time, to try to build a relationship with this country which is different from the one from the past. The last two questions, here and here. And then I think we'll have to call it. What about Anne Corbett, um, a former uh, Vice Chairman of the Franco British Council. Um, by definition, a lot of your job is about problem solving um, and hopefully thinking far enough forward that the problems are a long way away and therefore solved. What are the things you most enjoyed about being ambassador? I would say one of the things I've enjoyed to be a diplomat, most important. I mean, to be ambassador, to, to be to be diplomat, to be ambassador, of course, is fantastic. And, uh, I can I can tell you how much uh, that can flatter egos uh, every day, uh, but I won't. I won't. No, I think that the diplomatic job. And the ambassador job is a very important one. And I've enjoyed it every day. Why? Because contrary to what people think, the modern age, the, the, the phone calls between heads of state, the airplanes, the, the, the quick relationship, don't, don't uh, uh, reduce uh, the, the role of the ambassador. I would say on the contrary. I think that it increases it. Why? Because heads of state and government see each other much more than before, telephone each other much more. But it is usually on particular points. 
that they have to solve, either of a bilateral nature or of an international nature. They would call each other before Annapolis. They would call each other before an important conference on Iran, etc. But what makes the perception, what makes the decision of our leaders? It is, in fact, how they see the world, how they see their counterparts. And for that, they need to know what, is, what are the constraints of a country, what are the goals of a country, what are the person of my country vis-à-vis. -vis. And that, frankly, is, cannot be done but by not only ambassadors, but by embassies as a whole. And uh, that's, I think, why. And what I've enjoyed much here, most, it is the people. It is the people I've been in contact with. It is the press, at least most of the press, <laughs> uh, which I've found of an extraordinary quality, of an extraordinary richness. Uh, I've spent much time uh, with, with the journalists uh, in, in those five years to try to explain, to try to give my, my opinions, to get their perceptions, and that it has been very, very rewarding. And I think that what I've been enjoying most is what makes the characteristic of this country. It's, it's, it's openness, the curiosity of its people, its tolerance, the freedom that you, that you can enjoy. Uh, you found that rarely in a capital in, in, in the world. I will stop there because if not, you will think that the British are perfect. You know? <laughs> uh, and of course, we have, uh, we have all our qualities and, and, our, and our defects. But this country has huge, huge qualities uh, which uh, are, are, there, are there to stay. And to have spent those five years has been a, a real treat, uh, frankly. My name is John Meakin. I'm, a, I'm one of your nice journalists. Uh, and we will a, see. We will see. We'll see. And I'm a member of the Foreign Press Association. I wanted to ask you, if I may, about something you said, where you said there's no one single model, no French model, mm. no English model. But there's, without doubt, differences in thinking. Now, um, the LSEs, Anthony Giddens and uh, Will Hutton, for example, amongst others, have talked. Oh. Um, the LSEs, Anthony Giddens and uh, yes. Will Hutton, amongst others, have written about a way of characterizing the differences in thinking uh, economically as, for example, the Anglo-Saxon model versus the Rhineland mo model mm -hmm. with obviously the Brits uh, tending towards the first and the French tending towards the second. I wondered if you could comment on whether you feel that's an appropriate way of describing the, the different ways we think, whether they're still valid and how you see, as you say here, France and Britain coming together in that area of uh, activity. I think it's not very, I mean, it might be, in theory, uh, useful when we look at the past in defining models. But when, while defining models, what we see, what we read, very often is, in fact, the defense of one model against the other. And therefore, it freezes the issues. And we are in a world where things are not frozen. We are in a world where if you take France, as I said earlier, 
we have done very good choices in the past, which we take the benefit from today in nuclear policy, in health, in, ed in secondary education, uh, in public services, transport, infrastructure, etc. And we take also the inconvenience of the not so good choices that we have made in flexibility, uh, etc. Uh, and if you look at this country, you can look at about the reverse thing. Many choices have been made very wisely in terms of opening to the world, uh, opening to uh, foreign capital, uh, being really in the global market. At the same time, it's, I think it's not an excessive criticism to say that on other issues like public services, transport, uh, health, and, and others, there are some, some uh, uh, less inspiring uh, results. Uh, if you defend one model, what do you defend? Do you defend only the good things and forget about the less good? That's, that's not... I was speaking earlier about the question of integration. Uh, we have very often opposed the French model and the British model. I think that today what is important is how do we solve the problem of societies which are more and more diverse culturally and uh, with a necessity, which I think is more, in, more and more important as the world globalizes, of national unity. The, mo the, 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 most, the more the, the world is global, the more people have, have a necessity to have roots and to know where they are. If there is no national unity, then we will have separatism, some kind of xenophobia, nationalism at a lower level, and that's not good. So models, I don't like too much the word, because it, it means that there is either an idea or a system which has to be the model for everything. In the 90s, you remember, we were speaking about Russia earlier, the model was the market economy uh, and uh, privatize, etc. In a country which just was out the, the, the Soviet uh, era, it meant the opening and the creation of oligarchies, etc. It was not exactly adapted to the problems of that country at that time. And everybody admits that uh, today. So beware of models. I know there are lots. You, you can keep on going. Yes, okay. Sure. <laughs> um, I haven't had any here, but why don't I do? Why don't I swap to this side? I haven't had any on this side. Over here, and then you, and then you. Uh, Jacques Roland, Global Policy Institute. Pardon? Sorry, uh, sorry. Jacques, Jacques Roland. Yeah. Yeah. Jacques Roland, Global Policy Institute. Uh, you, uh, President Sarkozy, has often. Uh, mention his desire, his intention to relaunch, to give a new impetus to the European security and defense process. And given the importance that Britain would have to play in such, uh, such a process was going to develop and get the momentum, how responsive have you found the British authorities? Do you think a similar piece could be on the cards? 
I do think that uh, the defense matter, the defense security issues are very important at the, at the present time for the European Union. The fact that it arrives at a time where the relationship between our countries or our country and the United States is a more healthy one is good. Because in the past, in the remote past, uh, we have always been suspect of, when we spoke about European defense, uh, of willing, in fact, not to do European defense, but to undermine NATO and to undermine uh, the United States, which frankly is, I would use a non-very-diplomatic word, it's rubbish. Because we have the same uh, uh, forces, national forces. We are all, or nearly all, members of the Atlantic Alliance. So the idea that we would do one thing on one side in order to undermine the other is frankly not the case. I think that the case is that if you believe in Europe, in the European Union, being something different, something more than a market, then you have to know that, or you have to accept, you have to admit that there are common European interests. Among those interests, there is those about energy, those about climate change, those about immigration, those about trade, and about security. And what does security mean? It means to have the means for the European Union as a whole uh, to uh, have its say, to define its interests in the world. So that is not, will not happen as a sort of a spontaneous generation. Uh, it will happen because countries, and especially the main ones, those who have the capacity and those who have the will, uh, will join their forces in order to make that happen. This is what happened in Samadou. Since then, we have done much for the good of Europe. The relaunch that you, you speak about, yes, we hope that it will be possible. Yes, we hope that uh, the British uh, government, the British Prime Minister, uh, will, will share uh, those, uh, those goals. And uh, I hope that that will be the case. Ambassador, uh, my name is Innocent Chichera, and I'm from the Zimbabwe Tolerance Society. You are from? Zimbabwe Tolerance oh, Society. Yes. Uh, my question is, uh, what is the French government's uh, position and feeling towards Mugabe attending the EU summit in Portugal? And uh, the second one, is your president attending the summit? There is, a, there is a European position as far as Zimbabwe is concerned in order, about the, the sanctions that we have imposed on, uh, on Zimbabwe and on the uh, Zimbabwe government and president, and we are abiding fully uh, by them. And uh, there is not much more to say. Whether uh, President Sarkozy is attending the summit, I, I don't think so. I'm, I'm not sure. Mm -hmm. huh? 
I don't, I don't think that there is any, any uh, um, position on that. Is there? Ambassador, uh, my name is William Durst. I'm a postgrad student and in the European Institute. Um, you talked about the, foreign, uh, the common foreign and security policy, and I was particularly interested in the European uh, defence uh, objective. I would like you to. Uh, I would like to ask you why do you think that um, creating such a force would not undermine NATO? I could ask you, why do you think such a force would undermine NATO? But you, you ask the question, I, I, I don't. <laughs> but that's, that's a real question. It, it's very simple. We have an alliance which stays. The Warsaw Pact has disappeared. The Atlantic Alliance, although the, condition, the, the reasons which were the origin of its creation have disappeared, is still there. It means that on both sides of the Atlantic, people want it to be maintained. This alliance uh, has changed in nature. On the other side, the Europeans have to do more or to do simply for their defense. Do they do that all in the Atlantic Alliance or they do that also in order to strengthen both their capabilities and at the same time the alliance? So, to, to, to have more capabilities from the Europeans, to spend more, if need be, uh, for, for the Europeans, is in a complementary way with NATO, that is in a way which does not duplicate uh, uh, the, the resources without reason. Um, all that, in fact, increases uh, the, the, the strength of the alliance, because the alliance cannot do everything. There are matters in the situations in the world uh, where the, the Atlantic Alliance will not want, will not uh, be, we have no interest in Africa. We were, the, the European Union has been in Ituri, will be tomorrow in Chad. Uh, does that undermine the alliance? No. It increases uh, the, the position of the alliance because the, as a whole, the alliance doesn't want to be there that the Europeans have a duty, or we consider that they have a duty to be there. So it is a reinforcement uh, of our collective security, not a weakening. Thank you, Ambassador. My name is Robert Kizik from the Department of International Relations. Um, turning to the Balkans, uh, looking forward a couple of weeks, I was wondering if two questions, two very brief questions. Firstly, do you think that um, the situation in Kosovo and its pending possible independence will be um, something which may divide the European Union again in terms of its CFSP? And secondly, given that um, Lord Ashdown, former um, ambassador there, uh, said on the radio this morning that it would be highly, if such an event was, um, if some kind of breakdown in security occurred, a serious one, it would be up to NATO to respond as quickly as possible and to act um, swiftly and, and 
forcefully. Given that America and Britain are both um, elsewhere in the world occupied, do you think that France might be in a position to lead such a force? And if so, would it be under NATO or the SDP um, facilities? Uh, Kosovo is a very serious matter. Will there be uh, unity or not uh, on the Kosovo issue? I think that the answer is yes. I think that you know that some... The, what, is the, what is the matter? Negotiations have not, up to now, led to a solution which is acceptable by both parties, the Serbs and the Kosovars. Therefore, uh, the question is, should we let things as they go, which have been not solved for the last nine years? Because it is nine years since, uh, eight years, since the resolution 1244 was, but it, it led Kosovo into an uncertain future. So we have to solve this issue. Whether it's, uh, the status quo is good for stability or does the status quo undermine the present stability is the question. Eight years ago, we thought that Giving, giving Kosovo independence would, would undermine the stability of the region. Today, I think it is the contrary. This is why if there is no solution at the end, we will have somehow uh, to face that situation. I don't think that there will be divisions between the Europeans. Some Europeans might have more problems than others, but those, this is my hope, those European countries which have a problem with, with uh, that will not block a, a, a position of the European Union as such. Second, uh, uh, there will be a European force there. There is already, because you are, you are asking the British and the Americans are occupied elsewhere. Uh, there are not many British troops today either in Kosovo or in Bosnia. There are French troops in Kosovo and French troops in Bosnia. So they will stay there and we will have the Europeans to, there's no American troops either in your answer about Europe and the alliance. There are no American troops in, uh, in, in, in Kosovo. Uh, in, uh, so we will be there uh, with, in, in an operation which will be mainly European together with the alliance if needs be. So there is precisely the Balkans offer the, 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 the exact example of how the Europeans can meet their uh, obligations, be there militarily, together with NATO without any, any problem. Association with France so, over many sorry, years. Sorry, just say who you are and where My you. Chris Goddard. I, I was a journalist. stopped being a journalist after about 40 years. I've had quite a lot of association with France, and I now have the great good fortune to live there most of the time, anyway. You had the and great. I have the good fortune to oh, live. Oh, I thought France you had the great misfortune. So I was, <laughs> I was worried. I am increasingly struck, as my knowledge of the culture and, and the country improves by the fundamental differences that I detect, which are particularly sharp as we move more and more into a global economy 
as we are more and more fixated with market forces. What strikes me about France is that, in my view, very sensibly, they have always considered quality of life and culture, the maintenance of culture, to be a very important element in the social and economic mix. In this country, it seems to me that, and, and in the, the Anglo-Saxon world, it's more and more about personal enrichment. My question is, if France is to, jo is to become more along these lines, how is it going to be possible for France's social model to continue? I notice an extreme degree of alarm and uncertainty among French people about market forces, about the global economy, about the implications for a way of life which has really been peculiar to France in a very, very deep-rooted way for many, many years. How can you reconcile these two things? I, I would not be as pessimistic as you are. Uh, well, you have seen an, there has been an election in France. And during this election, this particular problem, one way or another, was put on the table. <coughs> it is true that the, the, the French people still now enjoyed a, not only a, a good, a, a high, uh, good quality of life, uh, and that they want to preserve it. At the same time, they know perfectly that in order to preserve it, they have to move in some areas in order to change. So the question is change or no change. This question has been solved, has been answered by the election. There were 86% of the French people who went to the polls. There were 53% people, 53 uh, of, the, of, the, of the voters who voted for a candidate which time and time again has been saying change, reform, change, reform. This is what I will do. This is where I will put change. This doesn't mean, as I said earlier, that from in, in, in one second we will change our culture, that we will change our uh, beliefs, that we will change our history, that we will change our way of life. But it is precisely in order to continue to have the, the, the uh, way of life uh, that we have enjoyed, that we have to make changes. We have to make changes in our universities. We have to make changes in our opening to the world. We have to make changes in the, 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 the way we operate uh, in our little businesses. Uh, but don't oppose the, 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 the preservation of culture and the way of life and nice uh, uh, little villages uh, in Perigord on one side and on the other side the, the market and the Anglo-Saxon world. No, because you have in France the best run uh, 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 companies, worldly uh, present. Uh, you have quite a lot of successes and the important is precisely to have modernity and tradition uh, go together. This is the, the, the task and uh, I don't think that, I think that we would be in, in great difficulty, uh, in great risk to go where you uh, are afraid that we would go if there would be no change. We need to change for the better, not change everything. Uh, but we, are, we have in the past uh, made a certain number of bad policies over the years, whether it was from the left or from the right, we, are, we, was, we were not addressing uh, reasonably a certain number of issues. Now is the time to address them in a way which is compatible with our 
culture, in a way which, are com which is compatible with our interests, and in a way which is compatible with, the open, with our opening uh, to the, uh, to the uh, global world. I'm not, I'm not pessimistic about that. You really are the last question. Uh, my name is Roger Pace. I'm an alumnus of uh, the LSE. Uh, we have a new president and new government in France. We also have a new prime minister and government in this country. And if one reads the press, one would conclude that our new prime minister is rather less pro-Europe and pro-France than his predecessor. Uh, my question is, uh, how do you view the prospects of France and Britain together uh, with our new Prime Minister? I should have said five to eight for the last <laughs> question. <laughs> but I... You can answer in two words. Pardon? Two words. <laughs> Goodbye. <laughs> it's... I think it's too early to say, frankly. I think that... Uh, this Prime Minister has been elected uh, in, uh, uh, not elected, sorry, has uh, come to power uh, last May, uh, and that there has been many domestic things on, on the agenda. Uh, I, and I think that now the time will come uh, when, he has said he has, he has delivered what he had to say on Europe as uh, the Foreign Secretary did in Bruges. Um, I think that it's, the, the time will come uh, when, on concrete issues, uh, they will have a certain number of things to say, of initiatives to take. Uh, there are already work underway at the European level or bilaterally in some areas in order to, to see to it that, especially during our presidency, uh, we can do things together. And I've, I'm very hopeful that uh, the question to your answer will be both positive uh, and uh, rapid uh, in order that uh, all what I've said earlier uh, becomes true. Is that a very clear answer? <laughs> Ambassador, you've been here before, so you know that even if you ask for nice questions or easy questions, the LSE just doesn't know how to do those. Uh, but can I say on behalf of the school, it's been both a pleasure and a real privilege to have you here uh, giving your valedictory speech. And I also want to pass on from the director um, his best wishes on behalf of the school for what lies ahead of you. Uh, but my colleague Damien Chalmers, who is uh, the head of the European Institute, and that institute has run this uh, program of lectures, wants to give his own thank you. So over to you, Damien. Thank you, thank you very much, Sarah. Um, the ambassador's return to Paris marks, if you like, the turning of a page, what is hopefully the opening chapter of a very long book, which is the development of our relationship with Sciences Po, which could only really have been enabled... Uh, through the support, generosity, efforts, and one has to say foresight of the ambassador, uh, the, the, uh, the embassy here, the French embassy here in London, and the Quai d'Orsay. And next to the high politics and the language of globalisation that we've heard uh, this evening, it seems rather modest. 
but we feel it's been a huge achievement in quite significant ways. In addition to this wonderful series of dialogues that certainly enriched life here at LSE, we have five joint degrees now that are changing hundreds of lives every year. We have joint research conferences which will hopefully allow the narrow, rather childish stereotypes of each other's countries that uh, the ambassador alluded to to remain firmly where they should remain, which is just in places like the sun and nowhere else. Um, and like many of the best ventures in life, I think it is a genuinely Franco-British Franco enterprise. And by that I mean that we have a marvellous colleague over here from Sciences Po, Professor Christian Lecan, and who has been an absolute joy to have here. Our colleagues from Sciences Po come and teach here. We go to Paris to teach there. We are doing research conferences together. And we do think it's quite innovative and just changing things, albeit maybe in a modest way, but thanks to the efforts of the ambassador in significant ways. A couple of, if I could just indulge you, a couple of people I would just like to thank. First of all, Sarah and her counterpart, who's not here, but is here in his absence, if you want, the president in his absence, from Sciences Po Francis Verio, whose drive and vision has really pushed this forward. But just looking at it from my narrow job in the European Institute, I have to pay a huge compliment and debt to my two colleagues, Christian Lecan and Maurice Fraser. They have humour, patience, uh, a wonderful outlook, and a tremendous sense of where to go, and it, they really have pushed this forward in wonderful ways. But I think it's right that the last word of thanks I can give must go to the ambassador. The ambassador does not realise this, but his first encounter with me was on the 25th of March, 1994. He came as already distinguished member of uh, French public life to give a lecture in the Institute of Advanced Legal Studies alongside Terry Dainty. It was an Anglo-French initiative. I think it was even sponsored a bit by the French embassy, although he wasn't involved with them then. It led, it was a tour de force, it led to a great paper in, uh, in uh, our leading public law journal, imaginatively called Public Law. He was not ambassador at that time. He was already enriching our public life in the UK in huge and distinctive ways. We hope he comes back regularly to do that, even though he's no longer France's man here in the United Kingdom. Thank you very much. Thank you.